the group that's going to Romania is on their way. I guess they're going out of New York uh, or so. So they are on their way. Their flight's at noon. Um, so we want to pray for them. That's Adam and Destiny and, uh, and Jerry. We've been uh, praying for them. So let's make sure we pray for them. Please, over the next 10 days or so, keep them in your prayers, these guys. Let's go before the Lord on behalf of them. Father, thank you so much for Adam and Jerry. Thank you for Destiny, their willingness to spend, Lord, uh, a bunch of their summer caring for and serving. Lord, uh, the orphans of Romania and bringing to them a message of hope. Lord, a message of, uh, of a Savior, a God that is so moved by love that he would uh, leave his place in glory and become one of his own creation uh, and then go to a cross in their stead. And Lord, uh, that a people can be washed and cleansed and forgiven. So Lord, we pray you bless Jerry, bless Adam, destiny. Lord, I pray that every word that they speak would come directly from your throne. Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit. You would empower them for the labor uh, over this next period of time, and you'd strengthen them. Lord, I ask that uh, in their own hearts that you would be doing a very powerful work. Lord, that in a new and a fresh way that they would be reminded of the glory of being in relationship with God, of not having to have sin hinder us from coming before the throne room of God. Lord, being washed and cleansed and forgiven. And then, Lord, any message that they share would be the overflow and the spillover of the work you're already doing within them. And, Lord, we pray that for the whole team that's going, Lord, that you would give them great success in their endeavors, we pray. And, Father, bless us in your word. Teach us. Open up our eyes to understand. Bring us to the place of conviction, we pray, and then... Give us the courage to respond accordingly that you might do a work within us is our hope and our desire. And we pray these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends, uh, we are in the book of Second Chronicles. We've been moving through it. So we're in chapter 24. So if you could turn there, please. Chapter 24 of Second Chronicles. This is uh, the second half of a study on the life of this fellow by the name of Joash. So we're in the middle of of the reign of Joash. Joash, you may recall, if you were with us, was only seven years old when he became the king. Obviously, others were helping him in the process. We learned that the high priest, a guy by the name of Jehoiada, was busy about sort of leading the nation and advising the nation. But Joash is the king. We have a slide here that kind of puts it in perspective. You'll notice Joash at the bottom there in sort of that orangey gold kind of a color. Uh, Joash started as a good king, did not end so much as a good king. Uh, And we'll look at some of the reasons why that is today. We'll spend more time focusing in on that. But Joash is considered one of those kings that are called the reformer kings. We saw Asa was a reformer king. Jehoshaphat was a reformer king. And now we come to this particular fellow who is a reformer king, which means that he wanted to bring spiritual and moral reform to the nation of Judah in particular, the kingdom of Judah, that had gone astray from the ways of God. And looking at him, we saw that he was a king that implemented moral and spiritual reforms. He was a king that put away the foreign gods from the kingdom. And he was a king that destroyed the temple to those foreign gods, as well as the high priest of those foreign foreign gods. But despite all of those good things that he did, it is still said of him that he was a man that was not fully committed to the Lord. He was not a man that was fully committed to the Lord. To the Lord, And as we will also see today, he was a man that was easily influenced by others. And so if the circumstances were such that good people were around him with noble intentions and so on, then he went in that particular direction. Remember in verse 2 of the chapter where it said all the days of Jehoiada. When Jehoiada was alive and influencing him, he went in a great direction and he did good things. But as soon as Jehoiada passes off the scene and other people come into his life, and they begin to influence him, he was susceptible to give in to that direction. And so if they were wicked people, then his deeds and his actions soon went in a wicked direction as well. And I think Joash is an example for us of a man that had a faith, but it wasn't his own faith. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And I think it's a good point for us to consider this idea that the faith that we possess is truly our own faith. And that is not the faith of another. And I think the reason why this fellow resonates in my life is because when I came to know the Lord, or I was coming around this idea of knowing the Lord, I was about 16, 17 years of age. 
And the first three, four, five months of my walk with the Lord, it wasn't my faith at all, but it was the faith of another, the faith of the girlfriend that I had at the time, my wife over there somewhere now. And so when I went to youth group with her, if she went, I went. If she went to church, I went to church. If she prayed, I prayed. If she read her Bible, I read my Bible. Every aspect of my faith was dependent upon her. But somewhere after about four or five months, as the truth of these things began to resonate in my heart, when I was alone in my bedroom, I had to begin to make decisions. Lord, am I going to follow you? Regardless of what happens with this girl, will I follow after you and walk with you? And I made a determination just uh, around the start of a new year, sort of like a resolution, that that next year I was going to go to church every single Sunday. I was going to go regardless of whether Robin could go or not. If Robin had to work for some reason because there's an emergency at Baskin Robbins, then I would go (laughs) on my own to church. And I think I told some of you this last week that one Sunday I showed up at church and there was this lady who had cared for Robin for for five, ten years, a lady named Candy. And this lady saw me and she, she had warned Robin many times about me, that guy's bad news, you don't want to be around him, that sort of thing. And she sees me there and she, she says nice things and talks whatever. And she says, where's Robin? I said, oh, Robin couldn't come today. And she says, you mean you're here by yourself? And she grabs me and she gives me a big hug and a big kiss and freaked me out a little bit here. But in her mind, she was beginning to notice that this is becoming his own faith. He's not just tagging along with another person. And the problem is when our faith is based on the faith of another person and solely based on the faith of another person, when you take that other person out of the equation, then that person is left with no faith at all. And that person is susceptible to fall into sin. And so we see in Joash's life, he had a faith that was dependent upon the high priest Jehoiada. And now that Jehoiada, as you'll see in verse 15, is taken out of the picture, then he's going to go astray very, very quickly. Look at verse 15. It says, Now Jehoiada grew old and full of days, and he died. And he was, a, he was 130 years old at his death, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward the God and toward God and his house. So Jehoiada dies at 130. Now, a person became a priest at the age of 30, which means that this fellow served the Lord for 100 years, faithfully served God for 100 years of his life, even during the very dark days of the nation of Judah, at great risk to himself. Remember, he's the one who rescued baby Joash from Queen Athaliah. At great risk to himself, he continued to serve faithfully during those times. You remember that it was he and his wife who single-handedly preserved the messianic line of King David by going against the wishes of the, the queen and taking this little baby, one-year-old Joash, and hiding him away and raising him until the day that he could be presented as the rightful king. And now he dies, and to honor him, the kingdom of Judah buries him in a place that was reserved for the, the good kings of the nation of Judah. It would sort of be like certain fields that are found in Arlington Cemetery. I I, I think it would be great to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery or whatever, but I don't think I have the credentials to be buried there. I've never served in uh, in war or anything like that, and I'm certainly not that important of a figure that they would make room for me in some faraway field there. But if I were a president or maybe a senator or some official and secretary of state or something, even if I didn't serve in a war, they'd find a place for me there. And Israel had a similar field, if you will, where they buried their kings. And in this instance, they put a priest in those fields to honor him for his labor unto the Lord and for his labor unto the kingdom there. So he's buried in this particular place. The three previous kings before him, a guy named Jehoram, Ahaziah, and then Queen Athaliah, they were not granted the privilege of being buried in sort of this the cemetery of the kings. But Jehoiada is. Now... We're looking at the life of Joash, and this little blurb here about Jehoiada's death is inserted because it, bear, it, it has a great bearing on which direction Joash's life is going to go. And as soon as Jehoiada and his influence is no longer present, what you're going to see is Joash's life goes a very different direction. So let's look at verse 17. It says, Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah, they came and they paid homage to the king. And the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. 
and yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord, and these testified against them, but they would not pay attention. So while Jehoiada is alive and serving as the high priest, these princes, they wouldn't dare come to Joash and say, let's worship foreign gods. But now that Jehoiada is off the scene, they come to Joash. Notice first what they do. It says in verse 17, they pay homage to the king. They butter him up. Oh, king, you're the best. You know, now that Jehoiada is off the scene, now you can really shine. You can rise up. You can be your own man. You won't be under another person. They're painting this picture to him. They're buttering him up. And then they hit him. And they said, this is what we would like you to do for us. And it says they petition him. I didn't say this, but what they do is they petition him to do evil. Notice it says the king listened to them. Well, what did they say? They said to abandon the house of the Lord, to go after these foreign gods. He was a man that was easily influenced. You put the right people around him, good things happen. You put the wrong people around him, and he would go astray. And so he goes astray. They begin to worship these foreign gods. They abandon the house of the Lord. This is the very house of the Lord that Joash required everybody pay the tax so we can rebuild this place. The temple had been in disrepair for 15 years, and he restored temple worship. He restored the building itself. And now, how quickly his heart has gone astray. He was a man that was easily influence and notice as always happens judgment came upon the people not because god is mad not because he's trying to get even but because he's trying to drive the people back to himself here notice verse 18 it says and wrath came upon judah and jerusalem for this guilt of theirs the writer to the book of hebrews says that the lord will discipline the one that he loves he does that. He, he makes them feel a little bit of pain and a lot of discomfort from time to time to drive us back. You remember, again, I shared it with you before, but the movie scene from the movie Airplane and the lady is freaking out there on the plane. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Those young, you may not know. But the plane's about to go down and this lady is freaking out. And there's a long line of people that are shaking her by the shoulders and slapping her on the face. Get a hold of yourself. Get a hold of yourself. And then you see the line, and the guy's got a lead pipe, and another one's got a handgun, and all this sort of stuff. And the idea is, with a slap across the face, you just kind of shake yourself back into reality a little bit. The Lord will bring pain into our lives, difficulties into our lives, to bring us back to reality. Lord, I drifted off. I wandered away. I don't remember the last time I prayed, Lord. But I'm praying now because this hurts, Lord. And so again, Hebrews 12 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Let me say this. If you can get away with sin and not feel the conviction of the Lord in your life, you should be concerned. Because if you can do all sorts of things and go down all sorts of paths and not feel conviction, not feel a heaviness on your heart, you need to question, what is my relationship with God? Because the scripture says that the Lord chastens, he disciplines, he convicts, he puts his heavy hand on the heart of the one that he cares for. And so if you're getting away with sin and you, could think, you think nothing of it, be concerned. The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And he uses pain to drive us to our senses and back to him. Now notice in verse 19, he sends them a voice. Somebody, now that they've kind of come to their senses, somebody to come alongside and said, look, here's what you need to know. Again, with the lady on the airplane, shook her back into her senses, slapped her, and then somebody comes along and says, it's going to be okay. They're working it out. Everything's going to be fine. Somebody to come in and speak into the person's life here. So look at 19. And yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. The people refused to listen. They would not pay attention. And so then in verse 20, what does God do? Mercifully, he sends another prophet. Now this is at least the third time with this instance that God has sent a prophet, a voice to speak into their life and to say, what are you doing? Why are you going down this particular path? Notice again, verse 19, it said he sent prophets. And here now in verse 20, he sends another prophet. And hopefully, I'm sure God is thinking, maybe this time they will listen. But look at verse 20. It says, then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and he said to them, thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken 
you. So this fellow's name is Zechariah. It says here that he is the son of Jehoiada. In the New Testament, Jesus references this Zechariah and says that his, name, his father's name is Berechiah. Now remember, in the Old Testament, I could call you a son, but that could mean grandson or great-great-grandson. So this particular Zechariah is actually the grandson of Jehoiada, son of Berechiah, and he comes with a simple message. His message is simply, the blessing of God is absent from the kingdom of Judah because you guys have gone astray. If we return to him, he will return to us and he will bless us. That's what Zechariah says. He has the nerve to come and say, because of sin, God is not going to bless this. If we forsake that sin, if we say, all right, God, I'm sorry, we blew it. I don't know what we were doing. We will see the hand of God, the blessing of God again. Now, notice what verse 21 says. This is going to blow your mind, especially in the context of things. And remember, Joash was a man who initially walked with the Lord. And now look, it says, but the people conspired against Zechariah, and by command of the king, they stoned Zechariah with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but he killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, Zechariah said, may the Lord see and avenge. Joash owes his very life to the grandfather of this guy. And now he kills this guy, all because the, this grandson had the nerve of challenging his sin. Notice Zechariah's dying words. He, as he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. As we're going to continue in our story, we're going to see that's exactly what the Lord does. And he avenges the death of this prophet here. Moving on to verse 23, it says, At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem. They destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people, and they sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with a few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a great army, because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. So here's Syria, the enemy nation, and despite having a small number of men, they're able to defeat the, the kingdom of Judah. Why? Because God gave them victory over the kingdom of Judah as a result of their sin. God was executing his judgment on Judah, and he was using the people of Syria, to do that. Additionally, not just the people of Judah for going after the false gods, but also Joash for what he had to do with Zechariah the prophet. Look at verse 25. And when they had departed from him, Joash, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest, and they killed him on his bed. So here's a man, he's wounded, he's stuck in bed, he can't really get out of bed, he can't defend himself. And now these servants who had known Jehoiada and saw what Joash did to Jehoiada's grandson, they finally say, you know what, this man deserves to die. And there he is lying in front of us, and they take his life. Now, Zechariah's dying words were, may the Lord see and avenge. And here, the father now exacts that vengeance. In the Song of Moses, this was written by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, part of which is his own words, part of which is the Lord speaking through him. Moses said this, and you've probably heard the verse before. He said, Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people, and he will have compassion on his servants while he sees that their power is gone. Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. You've probably heard that quoted. It's found in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10 quotes it. Romans chapter 12 also quotes it. This idea of letting God be the one who gets even, so to speak. Letting God correct the wrongs. Now, Zechariah is in a situation where he's going to die. He's laying there. Stones are falling on him. And I suspect it's his last set of words there where he says, God, would you right the wrongs? You know, God, may God avenge. May the Lord see and avenge. All right, so he's got no other choice than to ask God to do it. But the passage that is in Romans is written to you and I, not when we're on our deathbed, but when we're walking around in life and somebody wrongs us. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody has wronged you and you wanted to get even with them because they need to know? I remember a time I was up at Walmart there, up by the Quaker Ridge Mall area. And it's crowded, it was Christmas time, whatever it may be. 
And I'm waiting to pull in. I got my blinker on. I'm sitting there waiting. And I'm waiting to pull into a particular spot. And the way that things were situated, the car had to back out and come toward me and then pull the other direction. And so I'm waiting there nicely, and the car is backing out, and Merry Christmas, Jesus loves you, you know, this sort of thing. And as they are backed out, another car comes zipping around and shoots in and takes the spot. Well, I'll tell you, I'll be honest, if I had a gun, I would have went and talked to those people. I, I was so mad, I was so angry that they had the nerve to do this thing. And I honestly, I wanted to take a key, and I wanted to go and write, you stink, on their car. I wanted to do something to let them know that in a civilized society, we don't steal people's parking spots when they're waiting for it. I was so angry. Or how about the time when somebody makes a sarcastic, cutting comment to you about how stupid you are, how incapable you are, or just some remark that just brings you down and you just want to get back at them with another remark, or you want to sock them, you just want to get even with those people. Have you ever been there, or is it just me? Okay, good. You've been there with me. And the Lord says to us through Paul, and in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, he says, you know what, can you leave this in my hands? Can you allow me to write this particular wrong? And the vast majority of the time, my initial inclination is no, I can't. But this is nuts and bolts Christianity. This is what it means to follow on a daily basis and say, you know what, Lord, take it. You're probably better at getting vengeance anyway. I give it over to you. It's challenging and it's hard, but it's what we need to do, what we're called to do. Now, Zechariah is on his deathbed, and again, he can't do anything about it, but he says, Lord, may you see and avenge. This is wrong, and you know it's wrong. Right the wrongs. And then as we move into verse 25, it says that he died, and they buried him. It continues, they died, they buried him in the city of David. This is again the Joash, the king. And they did not bury him in the tomb of the kings. And those who conspired against him were Zabad, the son of Shimeath the Ammonite, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith, the Moabite, foreigners, both of them. Accounts of his sons and of the many oracles against him and of the rebuilding of the house of God are written in the story of the book of the kings. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So he's a fellow Joash. He began well, but he didn't end well. Because of the influences in his life and his susceptibility to go with the peer pressure, he fell away from the Lord. And he committed evil in the ending days, the last days of his life, even killing Jehoiada's offspring. Now, we're going to move into chapter 25. And as we move into chapter 25, we've already been introduced to Amaziah. Amaziah, the son of Joash. He is going to go on to become the next king of the southern tribe. And I think we have a slider. You can see Amaziah. He's going to reign up until about the year 760 or so B.C. You can see how far that is from Solomon there and David, who was just before him. But that's Amaziah. We don't have record of Amaziah. Excuse me. We don't have record of the kings of Israel in Second Chronicles, but we do read about them in Second Kings. And so I'll just put them on the map as well for you. Jehoahaz, he reigned during the, the life of Joash. No mention of him in Chronicles. And the next guy is Jehoash. You can see he's there um, during both Joash and Amaziah. So during this two period is a fellow there. And then there's Jeroboam II. And don't mix Jeroboam II with Jeroboam. That one. The first. All right. Same name. I don't know why you would name your kid Jeroboam. He was an evil, wicked king. Um, but this is Jeroboam II. And so we're going to be talking about the context of these folks here so you're familiar with their name. But this is Amaziah. He is the king of Judah, starting in verse 1. It says, Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Yay. Yet not with a whole heart. Oh. Okay, so you have the ominous words added there, yet not with a whole heart. So again, we put him... I don't think it's there anymore, but we put him in sort of this rusty gold color as well because he did some things that were right, but unfortunately it says here, not with a whole heart. You remember that the standard of kings is King David. Not a perfect man, but of David it says that he was a man after God's own heart. Again, this idea of where was the heart dedicated? David was a man after God's own heart. David, though he sinned, never went astray after the foreign gods. And as we see here, as we're going to see here, Amaziah will go astray after the foreign gods. 
Amaziah did some good things, but his heart was not fully given over to the Lord. And as a result, in the later days of his reign, he ran after foreign gods and offered sacrifices to them. Now the first ten verses or so are going to look at the good things that he did. So let's take a look at them. These would be those things classified as right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 3, as soon as the royal power was firmly his, he killed his servants who had struck down the king, his father, but he did not put their children to death according to what is written in the, law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not die for their children, nor children die because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Now, in that day, it was not unusual when a king took power, particularly if you were going from one family to a different family. But when a king took power, they would find their rivals and they would kill off their rivals to to neutralize any threat that might be against them. It was very common in some of the surrounding nations. Not only would I kill this father that was a threat, but all of his kids as well. I would off them as well. Moses, however in the book of Deuteronomy, made it very clear that when the children of Israel came into the land, that they weren't to do that. If they want to go to war against a particular guy, fine, but don't kill off his whole family because of what that particular guy did. And the verse that we have quoted here in 2 Chronicles 25 is virtually identical to the one that is found in the book of Deuteronomy. Fathers shall not die because of their kids, nor their children die because of their fathers, but each one is responsible for their own sin. And I appreciate this about Amaziah. This is an example of him doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. He saw these kids. He knew that any one of them could rise up and say, I'm going to get even, you killed my dad, or whatever. But he obeyed what Moses had to say back in the book of Deuteronomy. It's found for us in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And you know, this principle of Scripture, that each one is accountable for themselves, that I, I'm not on the coattails of another and, and they're not on my coattails or whatever. This principle is found for us in the New Testament. And it's this idea that everyone is responsible. We all stand or fall in the presence of God independently of anyone else. There will not be a crowd at the gates of heaven, so to speak. And you won't be standing amongst a group. You won't be standing with your family. But you will stand there on your own. Each one of us is accountable to God for our own sin and for what we have done with the person of Jesus Christ. And I hear people say things like, but God, my parents, I went to church every Sunday. My parents brought me to church every Sunday. And unless that young person has made a decision of what to do with the person of Christ, Jesus will say the tough words that we see in Matthew chapter 7. He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. I knew your mom, I knew your dad, but I never knew you. Some of us will say, but Lord, my husband knows you, my wife knows you. Can I come in and just sort of sit in the back or whatever? And they'll say, I never knew you. Often you will hear people will say, well, I'm an American. We're all Christians in America. And they'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. See, the Lord, our judge, is going to look at each one of us individually. And the question that he's going to ask is, he's going to say, what have you done, you done with the gift of my son? Don't tell me what mom and dad did. Don't tell me what your husband or wife did. What did you do? Each of us are going to be judged on our own merit, if you will, and what we've done with the Lord Jesus. Now, I think there's also a word of encouragement looking at this from the converse here. Because some of us, and I got a lot of amens in the first service, some of us come from a very messed up background. We got nutty parents, crazy grandparents or whatever, all sorts of junk that has come our way as a result of the sin of those that have come before us. And certainly there are consequences of that. You know, and so some of the difficulties and struggles that you have to go through are in direct proportion with how your parents raised you and, and things like that, no doubt. However, there is a teaching that is kind of makes its way around Christianity that is something that is called generational guilt. And that is because of the sins of those that have come before us that we would directly We are directly um, suffering as a result of that. What I mean by that is this. Let's say that your family or whatever were into all sorts of um, practices or whatever that would open themselves up to something like demonic activity. And because you're their children and they gave birth to you, now you are opened up to demonic activity. The, The phrase that is used to describe it is generational guilt. Here's the problem with that. The Bible doesn't teach it. It's, I can understand it. I can see how you can get down that particular path here. 
and cause me to feel terrible about who I am and where I am in life, but the Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible teaches that each one of us stand on our own, that each one of us are responsible for our own sin. So the word of encouragement is, if your family's nuts and crazy and all sorts of things have happened, you stand on your own. And let the truth of this word speak into your life. You are set free from the bondage of the sin that may have bound your parents or your grandparents or someone else. You are free in Christ. And there's no such thing as generational guilt according to the Scriptures. So continuing to look at Amaziah, verse 5 says, Then Amaziah, he assembled the men of Judah. He set them by fathers' houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. And he mustered those 20 years old and upward, and he found that there were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle both excuse me, both spear and shield. 300,000 men. That's a lot of men, 300,000 men. But do you remember just back during the reign of King Jehoshaphat? It was only about two or three chapters ago we were reading about him, and it spoke of him assembling an army. And all the numbers that were put together, it, it said that he had 1.2 million men in his army. That's the nation of Judah just 80 years ago. Now that number has dwindled down to 300,000. Still an impressive number, but nowhere near where the nation had been in its power and the number of men that it could send out to war. And so with a smaller army, Amaziah looks to hire mercenary troops. Look at verse 6. It said he also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 shekels, or 100 talents, I should say, of silver. Now remember, there's the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so he goes and he hires 100,000 soldiers that will supplement his 300,000 men to go off into battle. Seems to make sense. A few more men. We got some cash. Let's go for it and let's get them there. However, as you look at verse 7, you will see that this was not in the will of God. And so what does God do when we're outside of his will? He's gracious enough to send us a voice. The radio station comes on and suddenly you hear and you're like, that's totally for me. You come to church and it's the same exact message. You sit down and you're reading the newspaper and it's the same thing that God has been trying to speak to you. God sends us a prophet. He sends us a voice to kind of wake us up to what's going on here. And here, as we see in verse 7, it says, But a man of God came to him and he said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all these Ephraimites. But go, act, be strong for battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? Because God has the power to help or to cast down. So reference is made to the Ephraimites. Remember that the, the kingdom of Israel was comprised of ten tribes. The largest tribe at this time here is Ephraim. So we're seeing more and more reference to the nation of Israel by just simply using a, a synonym and saying the Ephraimites. And so here, this is the nation of Israel called by the name the Ephraimites here. And essentially, the prophet is saying, what are you doing joining with those guys? What are, you, what are you doing? Why is it you think you're going to fail? Because you only got a few people, 300,000. That's a lot of people. But why is it you think you're going to fail? God can deliver you. You don't need these people here. So what are you doing? And so he basically says, don't do it. You, did you see the sad comment in there? Halfway through, it says, for the Lord is not with Israel. Can, it's almost hard to believe. What do you mean the Lord's not with Israel? How could God not be with Israel? God loves Israel. Israel is the apple of his eye. But remember, what we're talking about here is you have the kingdom, you have Judah, and you have Israel in the north. The one that it's saying that God is not with is these guys. Quite frankly, they're not the real Israel anyway. The real Israel is the one down in Jerusalem going by the name of Judah. But how far did these ten tribes stray that they which had one time been included in that which is the apple of God's eye, God is now saying, I'm not even with them. So anyway, the Lord says, I'm not with them. And he tells Amaziah, look, either way, you don't even need them. God can protect you. If the Lord's on your side, you're going to have victory. Now, I appreciate Amaziah's response because I think it's what a lot of us will say. But Lord, I've already invested a lot of money into this, a lot of time, a lot of resources. I can't turn back now. I'll look foolish. And the Lord, or the, uh, oh, I'll read it to you. He says, Amaziah said to the man, but what shall we do? We've given a hundred talents already to the army of Israel. Lord, we've already invested a lot of money. We're going to lose all that money. And the man of God answered, verse 9, the Lord's able to give you a whole lot more. Count your losses, get out, don't compound your mistake, and move on and let God bless. Now, Amaziah responds to the prophet, as you can see here, this is another example 
of him doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. The conviction has come. God spoke to him through a prophet. He has a choice to make. And he, he makes the choice of listening. He obeys. Look at verse 10. Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah. They returned home in fierce anger. But Amaziah, he wasn't you know, swayed by that. He took courage. He led the people. He went down to the Valley of Salt, down by the Dead Sea. He struck down 10,000 men of Seir, that's the Edomites. The men of Judah, they captured another 10,000 alive, and they took them to the top of the rock, and there they were thrown off of the rock. They were dashed to pieces. So this guy, Amaziah, he listens. He sends the army of Israel home, and God gives them a great victory. Unfortunately, in verse 13, you now have a bunch of angry, laid-off workers. And look at verse 13. It says, Now the men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to battle, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Haran, and they struck down 3,000 people in them, and they took much spoil. Now, these guys are getting paid. I say laid off, but they're giving, they're giving a severance package. Here you go. We're not going to need your services. But we signed a contract. No problem. Keep all the money, but we don't want you to come with us. So you would think, why are they mad? They got all their money. They didn't have to fight. They're mad because as part of the contract, if you will, was the spoils of war. And that might be more money than the paycheck that they're going to get. And now they don't have an opportunity for that. And so they're angry. They're frustrated. It reminded me, remember last summer, the teachers union in Wisconsin, when they took uh, hold of the Wisconsin State House, they, those were mad people there because something was happening with their contract that they didn't like. So these guys are mad. So they said, we're attacking something. And so they attacked Samaria. Samaria is actually in Israel. So you have Judah, you have Israel right in the middle of that. But part of the northern tribes is Samaria. But these cities that are mentioned here, even though they're in Israel in the north, they had been conquered by some of the kings of Judah. And so uh, there's people of Judah that are living in those particular cities. These guys go, they raid there. You can see they kill some people and they also take much spoil as they make their way back uh, to Israel. Now, back in verse 14, you begin to see the start of Amaziah's fall. So Amaziah had just had this victory. He sent 100,000 people away. He, he has a great victory uh, down in the south in the Valley of Salt there. And verse 14 says, Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites. He brought the gods of the men of Seir. He set them up as his gods, and he worshiped them, making offerings to them. What are you doing? Therefore, the Lord was angry with Amaziah. I guess so. And he sent him a prophet. How merciful. I, I, I interject a lot. Forgive me. Uh, who said to him, why have you sought the gods of a people who could not deliver the very people from my hand? It's like there's a level of incredulity there in the, in the words of the Lord. I can't believe you would do that. I just beat those people, and now you would go and worship their gods? It doesn't make any sense. Now, as we saw with Amaziah, it said he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Whenever you see in the Old Testament that phrase, yet not with a whole heart, it's always referring to spiritual idolatry, to worshiping another god or something. His heart wasn't fully given over to the Lord. And so here you have the example of it. Amaziah is a man who partially had a heart for God and partially had a heart for other things. He was a man who had not fully given his heart over to the God of Israel. And because he had failed to fully surrender his heart to God, he went astray after the foreign gods. So to put it into context for us is he kept a little bit back for himself. God, you can have this, you can have this, and you can have this. But I'm going to keep this over here for myself. And that is what we would call a divided heart. So for instance, a person say, man, I gave up drinking, and I gave up doing drugs, and I gave up running around with women, but I'm keeping this area this area of unforgiveness, this area of bitterness, this is mine. God can't have it. And if God has a problem with that, I gave up a lot for him. You see, this is what's going on in the heart of Amaziah. He has a divided heart. And here's the thing about a divided heart. Your divided heart will always find a way to go to this thing right over here. You gave up this, you gave up this, you gave up this, but you're keeping that. You will end up worshiping this one thing. And that will hurt you in your relationship with God. Our walk with Christ is a continual process of having God shine a light on our lives, revealing something in our lives, and, he'd say, and him saying, I'd like that, please. Would you bring that to my lordship? And or having to make a decision, okay, Lord, here. Or, no, 
I've given you enough. I'm not giving you anything more. And it's almost hard to say that. I would never say that, but we say it all the time, don't we? When we wrestle with these things that I'm not willing to give away, this is mine. And so sometimes we think, when we talk about, could you share a testimony? And somebody will come up and they'll talk about how God, 30 years ago, did a work in their life and brought them to the Lord. Well, the reality is what happened 30 years ago in your life or three years ago in your life or three weeks ago in your life is not as significant as what God is doing in your life right now. What's the Lord putting his finger on in your life right now? And what is he dealing with? And how are you responding to that? Because when the day comes where we say, God, I've given enough, I'm done giving, then we're going to go astray. Our heart is divided and we'll find ourselves worshiping another. It requires us, to keep our heart from being divided, requires us absolutely, totally, and continually surrendering to the Lord. Every area of our life that he puts his finger on. Now, I appreciate, in, in my experience, my relationship with the Lord, is when the Lord looked at me 25 years ago, he probably saw a gazillion things. Man, we got a lot of work to do on this guy here. But in his mercy, he revealed one or two things in my life. And he said, we're going to work on these things. And as I submitted them to his lordship, he gave me a day off or whatever. And then he said, okay, good. Now I got some more things we got to work on. Let's work on this one thing. And very gradually, he began to change me. And every time it came to a place where I had to make a decision, yes, Lord, I'll give that too. Yes, Lord, I'll give that too. There's a great book. I'd encourage you to read it this summer. It's by Andrew Murray. It's called Absolute Surrender. And it speaks to this small little book. It speaks to this idea of every area of my life, Lord, I bring to your lordship. As he exposes my life, I give my life. So here you have Amaziah. Great victory. By the hand of God, captures all sorts of spoil. And his response is to gather up those things and to bring them back. Now that's the norm. However, included in the spoil that he brings back are the ornately designed and probably gold-covered idols of the land here. And he brings them back. And soon he's going to be worshiping those idols. Moses, again, to quote Moses, had given specific instructions. Remember, Moses was leading the people in preparation to go into the promised land. Moses never went into the promised land. But as he was leading the people, he gave them instructions. When you come into the land, you're going to do this and this and this and this. When you come into the land, just like we saw earlier, you know, when you have to kill someone, don't kill their, their kids too because of their sin, that sort of stuff. Well, Moses gave specific instructions. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And it says... The idea is when you come into the land, you're going to encounter these people with all their false gods, and you're going to conquer them. And when you do, he says, you shall tear down their altars, you shall dash in pieces their pillars, and you shall burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods, and you shall destroy their name out of that place. No mention of gather them up and bring them back to your palace. But Lord, there's a lot of gold there. But Lord, look at that artwork. It's so ornate and it's amazing. Lord, we could burn that down and we could take that gold and do good things for you, Lord, with it. Much like Judah said, when that lady wasted, he said, the anointing oil upon Jesus. We could have taken that and fed the poor. And I love the commentary that's added in the gospel there. He didn't care about the poor, but he was dipping his hand into the money box. That's what he cared about. That was his idol. That was his God. No mention of bringing the idols back to your place, but specific mention of destroying the idols because the Lord knows the propensity of our hearts to go astray. So just get rid of them. Don't have them around at all. But this guy can't do that. Something about these idols appeal to him. And so he brings them back, and before long his heart has gone astray, and he's worshiping these foreign idols. He's in sin. But God is merciful. And what will God do? God will send a prophet, and he'll speak into his life, and he'll essentially say, you know, man, I don't know what you're doing, but if you confess your sin, God will forgive you. Repent, man, repent. And so we look in verse 15. It says, The Lord was angry with Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who could not deliver the people from your hand? And Amaziah, just like the fellow before him, he's confronted by a prophet, and he has a choice. Will I listen or won't I listen? He's confronted by the voice of God. There it is again in, in the car radio. There it is again on a Sunday morning. There it is again in my devotions, that same message. God's trying to tell me something here. Will you listen? Amaziah has given the opportunity to listen, but unfortunately this time he doesn't. He hardens his heart. He refuses to listen. Look at verse 16. As he was speaking, 
the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop, he says. Just shut up. I don't want to hear you. You have no right to be in here. Nobody invited you to come in. Just shut up. Why would you be struck down? I'll kill you if you don't stop. So the prophet stopped. But he said, I know that God is determined to destroy you because you have done this and you have not listened to my counsel. Now I imagine the scene. Notice uh, Amaziah's words. He says, have we made you a royal counselor? I imagine there's a bunch of people that are gathered around him. And here's this prophet guy who comes in, probably apprehensive. Nobody really wants to be the voice of bad news. I don't, I don't want to be. And here he comes in and he says, look, this is sin. He got all of his gumption up and he comes in and he says, this is sin. And then the king begins to mock him. Have we made this guy one of my royal counselors? That he would come in this place and suggest to me what we should be doing? Then he looks at him and he says, shut up. Say another word and I'll bring you down. And I appreciate him, uh, the prophet. He's like, okay. But I need to say one more thing if I can. You know? And so he says to him, you're dead, man. You refuse to repent and you're going to die as a result of this. Everybody have a nice day. I'm out of here. And he leaves. And he leaves a particular scene here. But he says that the Lord will destroy him. Now, as you move on to verse 17, you're going to see that judgment come. This doesn't necessarily mean it was the next day. This could have been 10 years later or whatever it may be. The prophet went his way. And this fellow here, verse uh, 17, let's read it. He says, Then Amaziah, the king of Judah, took counsel, and he sent to Joash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, the king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon, sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You say, See, I have struck down Edom. And your heart has lifted you up in boastfulness. But now stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? As you're going to see in verses 17 and following, these are the consequences for the way in which he treated that prophet three or four verses earlier here. He's going to be killed in this. Well, he's not going to be killed, but his, his nation is going to suffer as a result of this here. And so... Again, 10 years later, 5 years later, who knows? Not necessarily the next day, but a period of time goes by, and this guy's feeling pretty good about himself, Amaziah, the king. And so it says that he reaches out to Joash. Now remember, Joash is the name of his dad, but there's also a king in the north who's his contemporary who is also Joash or Jehoash. It's also written sometimes in the Scripture. That's who we're talking about. And he writes a letter to him, and he says, we should get together face to face. Now, you might look at that and you're like, okay, he wants to, to hang out with the guy. Th that's a, a call to battle. Put up your dukes, man. You know, it's one of these, let's go, let's fight here, is what he says to him. And I love Joash's response. I think it's one that we should all memorize for the next time somebody taunts us. His response is essentially, first we'll put it in our language, seriously? Seriously. You're going to come at me and you want to fight me because you won some battle, you know, down the road a little bit here? I think that if Amaziah was in the presence of Joash, he would have patted him on his head. And he said, would you just go your own way, please, and stop thinking you're a big tough guy because you won some battle somewhere? He says to him, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon. And so that's the phrase that you can memorize. The next time somebody taunts you, come on, you're a thistle on Lebanon. Well, I'm a cedar on Lebanon. You can use that phrase. You can quote the scripture here. Uh, he uses the phrase and he says, look, man, don't, don't bring trouble on yourself. You don't want to come up here and fight. You're not as strong as you think you are. But look at verse 20. Amaziah won't listen because God is in this to bring about his end. It says, but Amaziah would not listen for it was of God in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies because they had sought the gods of Edom. And so Joash, king of Israel, went up. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah, the nation, was defeated by Israel. And every man fled to his home. And Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and he broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of God in the care of Obed-Edom. He seized also the treasuries of the king's house and also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. So Joash doesn't kill 
Amaziah, but he captures him, and in addition to that, he takes a great deal of spoil from both the temple and the palace. He takes a bunch of hostages from Judah and imprisons them, and then he breaks down 600 feet of the wall of Jerusalem. Now, a nation would build a wall around itself so that, with just a few gates so that at night you only need one guy, two guys, to protect the whole city. You didn't have to worry about people sneaking in from any angle through people's backyards or whatever. Now, the city of Jerusalem is vulnerable to attack on one of its walls. 600 feet is open that people can come in. The people are vulnerable to fall because of the sin of this guy, because of his pride and his boastfulness. You know, sometimes because of the things that we do and the sin, we cause other people to be vulnerable about it. How many people, because their spiritual leader, their pastor or something like that, has fallen, their faith has been shipwrecked? How many kids go astray because mom and dad's faith has gone in a direction that didn't honor the Lord? And they see that and they say, eh. And now they're vulnerable to attack as a result. How many people are enslaved, like these hostages were, because of the sin of a guy like Amaziah, who said, I'm going to do it anyway, and now the consequences, other people have to deal with that. And so you see this example here. Amaziah, he hardened his divided heart, and he refused to listen. And as a result, there's suffering in the nation. Even the implements of worship are taken away. And so even people's personal relationship with the Lord is suffering as a result of his sin. And so finally, the concluding verses of his life, verse 25, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, he lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the king of Israel. And the rest of the deeds of Amaziah from first to last, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and then he fled to Luchish. But they sent after him to Lachish, and there he was put to death. And they brought him upon horses, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Not in the place of the kings, but in the city of David there, because his death wasn't worthy of the honor to be buried with some of the great men of the history of Judah. So Amaziah. So we've looked at Joash, we looked at Amaziah. Joash, a fellow influenced by his peers, didn't have a faith of his own. Amaziah, a man who had a divided heart, and sin found its way into that place of division. I think valuable lessons for us. I think Joash's life, who are we allowing to influence us? And if so, we need to be careful because we'll go astray. I think Joash's life, we ask ourselves, is it really my faith? Or am I just tagging along with somebody else? We need to make it our own faith. And I think Amaziah, what are we keeping back from the Lord? Thinking I'm keeping this for myself, it doesn't really matter. I've given God so much. What you keep back will eventually bring you down. 